Hello and welcome to the DMH Stallard Employment Law Podcast. In this brief episode, I'm joined again by my employment law partners, Rustam Tata and Stephen Tenhove, for a whistle-stop tour and an update in relation to the uh, retained EU law bill um, after a big announcement just a few days ago around what will what will and what will not be happening uh, on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, just coming up in that regard, 2023 going into 2024. And alongside that, some new regulations providing for changes to UK employment laws in respect of working time regulations. And that includes the holiday rights that uh, a lot of our listeners will have been looking at with interest since the Brazel decision and around Tupi. And we'll also be looking at what hasn't been included in those regulations, making changes to employment laws and which we might have thought would be in there. So, um, Kicking off, because we've got a lot to get through in, in a brief update session, uh, Stephen, can I start with you? The bonfire of EU uh, laws for, that was due to take place on New Year's Eve, can you give us an update then uh, on what the news from last week means in this regard? Are we still having a bonfire? Uh, no, Adam, we're not. And uh, to, to recap... We kept European law in 2018 with the European Union Withdrawal Act that retained all EU, EU law for the time being so that we could function with EU law. In 2013, we have now got the Retained EU Law Act, which abolished or tend, intended to abolish at the end of this year all European um, legislation. Uh, but also the supremacy of EU law, EU law decisions, um, the principle of direct effect of EU regulations in this country, and principles of EU law, the way they're interpreted by judges was to be abolished as well, or judges were given the freedom to uh, not to follow EU principles when looking at EU law. Um, the government significantly backtracked on that because the number of um, statutory instruments, regulations and acts, which was to be abolished, was limited to 600 rather than the thousands that are actually in existence. So on the 10th of May, the government uh, decided to consult on what it called smarter regulation to grow the economy. And that included changes to working time regulations, TUPI, certain European case law. And it also suggested that it would change the law as regarding post-termination restrictions to abolish non-compete clauses of more than three months long. Um, so it essentially proposed those things um, whilst, I think, uh, retreating on the bonfire and making it rather a, a, a small uh, blaze or a, perhaps even a candle instead. So that's where we are. And that's um, that's what the government promised to do back in May. And we now have the consultation has taken place, and we now have the government's proposals as from uh, last week. Yeah, and, and, uh, and to, 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 to boil it down in, to, without, with the risk of oversimplifying it, effectively what has been confirmed in the last week or so is that, uh, broadly speaking, uh, EU law will be retained unless, uh, other than in these very, very specific narrow contexts of regulations that they've that have already been touched upon, um, great, yes, and a great then it's watch this space. A great deal of EU law will be retained for the time being. It certainly won't be going on the 31st of December, but some things yeah. will be going, which are quite important and bear on what we're going to discuss. 
particularly the way that judges are no longer obliged to follow EU law. So as we'll see, one of the things that the government has done is actually expressly retained pieces of EU um, judge-derived law, which would otherwise have been abolished on the 31st of December or more accurate, the judges could have changed. So far from actually abolishing law, the, the, the government has retained some laws. Um, the principle of direct effect has gone. And as I said, the principle of, by which governments, uh, governments, judges interpret law has, is also going. Those things are going still. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting because that doesn't come through from what comes out in the press. And obviously the politically charged point is, are, are we removing EU laws it's a much more bold and, and and obvious change but what you're saying is that um, the government's not going to row back the position from EU derived case law but it, the power of judges is then left there so it's a bit like how we might change our legislation going forward the case law will be a watch this space as well depending on how yeah uh, UK it, it could well be and judges deal with it and if that at the moment that may have some tricky results for the government so what they've done is they've effectively they're passing legislation to ensure that judges can't depart from existing eu law as we'll as we'll see which is an interesting yes, that is a yeah. very interesting dynamic yeah. but the, the the key thing is that the government was going to abolish eu law that's about five thousand pieces of legislation as far as we can make out and we're still back at the original 600 which yes. was on the 31st uh, almost none of which actually directly impinge on employment law now, now, Rustam, some might say it's for that's, thank you, Stephen. Rustam, some might say it's for political expediency, and some might say it's totally unconnected. But given that about five thousand laws that EU laws that were going to go are not going, um, there is some uh, good news for those who support a move away from EU law and um, regulations. In that we have got some new laws in regulations now that were presented last week that will, are due to be coming in on the first of January, twenty twenty four. Are you able to just give us a summary of sort of headlines from that selection of of laws that have now been put put into draft regulations? Yeah, so those that will come into effect from the 1st of January as currently planned, um, they're really in three main areas. One is in relation to the record keeping in respect of working time. The second is a slight change in relation to the 2P provisions regarding collective consultation. Uh, and the third, um, and probably the most significant, relates to the approach to the calculation of holiday pay. Yes, yes. And that's the subject that we've talked about on this series before, haven't we? And um, looming large in those changes is that decision of um, Brazel. If, can we just stay on that? Can we deal with that last bit first, Russell? And talking, thinking about just briefly an update on where we ended up with the Supreme Court's decision in Brazel and to what extent these regulations uh, seek to alter that position, hopefully for, for the better for employers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably just a case of trying to tidy things up and probably um, shave off, as it were, or, or soften perhaps the um, the unintended consequence, perhaps, of the outcome in relation to, to Brazel. But essentially what Brazel said is that where you have somebody that works in irregular uh, pattern, um, that you don't count periods when they are not working when you're trying to calculate the amount of holiday pay that they receive when they're taking leave. So what that meant, of course, is one might over an average year say if they, somebody was just working 26 weeks out of the 52 weeks that you only calculate the amount of holiday pay by reference to those 26 weeks, which 
would, of course, substantially inflate the amount of holiday pay compared to somebody who perhaps worked over a 52-week period, um, but maybe did the same amount of work uh, in, in, in that period. So what the new regulations uh, propose is three parts, essentially. Um, the first two say that holiday will accrue in proportion to the time uh, actually worked, and there's a little bit of detail, well, quite a lot of detail around that, um, but it's going to be calculated by reference to the sort of current holiday year period, if I can put it like that, because there had been talk that they would look at, that the regulations would look at the previous 12 months and use that to give uh, an average, and there's been a lot of logic to doing that, although, of course, the difficulty is that for some of these individuals, they wouldn't have a previous 12 months uh, work with that employer in order to arrive at that calculation. That's the first element. The second element then is the maintenance of this uh, distinction that I know uh, Adam and Stephen, we were talking about last Friday um, between EU uh, holiday, if one can call it that, and UK holiday. So the EU holiday of four weeks and the UK holiday of 1.6 weeks. So those are the two elements coming in on the 1st of January. The next element, just as the teaser for the 1st of April, as is currently proposed, is the uh, permission, the statutory permission to use rolled up holiday pay. But note, rolled up holiday pay only in some cases, not a general entitlement of employers to pay a holiday on a rolled up basis. Okay. Yeah. That, that, taking each of those in turn, like the, the first point there, I mean, that that is a departure from Brazil, isn't it? How but this they've had this debate about how you work out average um, averaging for time worked, where Brazil took us to the last fifty-two weeks before any period of holiday to be taken, if I remember correctly, which yes. was perhaps fairer in some and many instances, but required the employer to look at every single uh, holiday <laughs> leave think... and then work back. The problem is, for every fairness, it would create an un manifest unfairness. Yeah. Yeah. So by ignoring periods when the employee is not working on one analysis, that would be fair. Uh, on another analysis, of course, if you have people working very substantial amounts in the weeks that they do work and then not working. Uh, and of course, and this has still got to play out in certain instances, both the employer and the employee might have the ability to somewhat game the system. Yes. Um, and indeed that possibility, I would say, albeit in a slightly different form, will continue going forward because in a sense what you do is you ensure that you've carried out substantial periods of work in blocks as it were and that will then um, control and determine the amount of holiday pay not the amount of holiday but the amount of holiday pay that will be received but in a sense one's always trying to get a square peg in a round hole with yes. irregular working patterns and hours uh, and a sense of holiday pay that somehow should be and holiday that somehow should be averaged across a period and yes. brazil really is a question of over what period which weeks do you count which weeks do you exclude and as i say trying to cure one unfairness potentially created uh, an unfairness yeah and of course i've been up many clients found with in the, the brazil position in order to manage their financial exposure, they were having to sort of artificially spread out working across several weeks um, to try and avoid having some, I mean, the, the worst case scenario, isn't it? Someone employed on a contract for the year, but only works one week, earns a lot of money in that week. It is entitled mm. to 5.6 times that week pay. So they're sort of trying, it, 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 yeah, so I mean, I, 
And the Supreme Court justified that, didn't they, very clearly by saying, well, this is atypical working. It's potentially very, very risky uh, so far as employment protection uh, and security of work, because in that situation where particularly the employee doesn't have very much control over how many hours they work. And so the Supreme Court said, well, this is almost the the quid pro quo for that. But it clearly also created some manifest unfairness, as I say, and, and also probably a number of unintended consequences. Yeah. So, so I mean, on on the third point, that's first of April. That's very interesting. That the third change for rolled up holiday pay, we have a longer lead in, which I suppose we say is necessary, Rustin, for employers to plan around around that change. Well, also, some may have, also, some may have not changed their approach at all. But for those who did try to get into line with Brazer, yes, and, and, and actually, I think you mentioned to me last week that even if you were doing rolled up before, the calculations aren't going to be the same so you'd still need to be thinking about what you need to do to prep for first of april well i think the first and really important thing to appreciate is that rolled up holiday pay is not going to be generally permitted it will only be permitted in those cases where a worker is taken to work irregular hours or for part of the year and the brazer was very much about the part year or what was described as the part year worker so it's not a general permission um the second piece is, as we're going back to the old 12.07%, which is probably a number which a lot of HR professionals uh, listening to this will be familiar with, because, of course, that was what was proposed, and that was the guidance, including in the ACAS guidance, and then that was withdrawn. Um, the, the pay, the holiday pay element, needs to be paid at the same time as some work is done. So quite how that's going to play out is going to be interesting, because, of course, the notion of holiday pay is it should be paid at the time, really, when the leave is taken rather than work is done. And the other thing, which probably we're also familiar with, which is the old Robinson and Steele position, was that it needs very clearly to be itemised on the pay statement, separately itemised on the pay statement. So it's rolled up to the extent that it's paid at the same time, but it is still a separate amount to the wages that the uh, employee will otherwise uh, receive. And I guess the other thing just quickly to flag is it's critical that the employer still ensures that the worker does take the 5.6 weeks leave. Yes, well, and I was going to see, take, get Stephen's take on that because you talked about it must be paid at the time work is done and that's at odds with the, the normal position, which is it, you get the holiday pay when you're on holiday. But of course... Stephen, I don't know if you've seen this, but lots of employers that use rolled up holiday pay, different scenarios arise and, and actually they find it very hard to ascertain or identify when someone should be treated as taking holiday. Because effectively, if we're not asking them to do some work, we don't really know where they are or what they're doing, um, which of course is what kind of leads you to this point about they just get it paid up and as and when they do some hours for us. And then we we have this sort of notional idea that they take leave, you know, they've accrued some money for leave there and they'll they'll take it which of course is at odds with the working time regulations as well about ensuring people have rest and all, all the rest of it but uh, i'm sure you've seen that as well Stephen, with employers um having this disconnect between the pay they add to an hourly rate and the individual actually being on holiday for, to their knowledge that i i agree but if in the circumstances where the um, um employee works or the worker works irregularly for you, they're likely to be working for somebody else as well. And I think it's incredibly difficult to police this sort of thing. I suspect that the current position is that employers employing people who are irregular workers or employees think that their obligation has been satisfied by paying them the 12.08%. 
um, they, of course, will take steps to get their employees to take that time on holiday. But there's no real way, it seems to me, of enforcing that. Or, no, better word is policing it because yes. they're likely to be doing something else with somebody else at that stage, taking their holiday when they wish to, and they'll already have been paid for that holiday. So I think, I think it's very difficult to. Um, I think that will continue to be the case. I don't know what you and Ruston think. I think I agree with you, Stephen. I mean, it'd be interesting if the employee had been required to nominate. There was some mechanism where the employee yeah. says, this is the holiday that I'm taking. I guess that's where we will get to yeah. in practice. As I said briefly earlier, the beauty, of course, of looking at the previous 12 months as an average is that, particularly for seasonal workers, that gives an overall sort of fair, tr broadly true and fair picture. And yeah. similarly, in context, you know, we don't call them seasonal, but we call them part-year workers for, for brazel purposes. Again, very often, for instance, in, in school and educational settings, you know, the sense that it might be somebody coming and doing a few weeks for exam invigilation, might be coming and doing sort of certain sort of one-off relatively identifiable when they would happen but you take the year as a whole and you say okay well how many hours and then there's another complication that we've still got with working time regs um, is that very often we're talking about days and weeks but in fact the calculation often is having to be done by reference to the number of hours so that's another opportunity perhaps missed in the context of of, of tidying up the regulations I don't think anyone's saying to be honest that this is kind of completely easy or straightforward and that there is a, a sort of a, 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 a magic pill that um, a relevant minister could have swallowed, but it, it's certainly not getting very much, very much easier and very much less complicated than it was. Yeah. Now, um, before we touch on Tupi, um, maybe we'll just, because uh, we've, we've got another working time regulation point to touch on there, but I know, um, Stephen, you're very keen to let us know what's not changed um, I'm, I'm keen to ensure we, you get a chance to tell us um what we've not seen in fact you alluded to it at the top of the discussion around um restrictive covenants i think yes um, that's right adam i the the government um consultation paper about all of this which came out in may included that they would um, they consulted or said they consulted about legislation to um, abolish um, uh, non-compete clauses uh, restrictive, in restrictive covenants. And there's no sign that the government has moved that on at all. And I'm not aware, I'd be corrected by either of you, that the government has even consulted on this as yet, because they had a consultation about this in 2018, 2019, which went nowhere. And... Um, and I'm not aware of any consultation having begun on this. So the one thing that really is absent from um, this uh, round of legislation, legislative tweaks is a post-restrictive um, covenants on non-competition. Completely absent. Yes, um, I think you're right. There was a response. There is a response to government consultation from May around non-compete clauses, but I'm not sure that we ended up with a final sort of statement of intent uh, or anything said, formal. To, uh, as I said, know. the government consulted on this in some detail uh, three or four years ago when it wanted to look at uh, post-termination restrictions as a whole, and nothing came of it. And this seems to have been lobbed in in May just to make things look uh, more um, 
remarkable than they turned out to be. Uh, and it's gone nowhere. So I think we can leave it there for the time being. Yes. Now, there was also, I think, on this issue of EU law and are we departing from it or not, there's a point around equal pay, isn't there, and the Equality Act and what's not happened in relation to changes and departures from EU law on that? Well, the uh, the changes to the Equality Act, which were very small and very technical, um, are examples of European case law, which the judges in Britain would be able to depart from as of the 1st of January next year. And the government has prevented judges from departing from them by enshrining them in UK law as from the 1st of January. So it's an interesting example of what I was talking about beforehand. And yeah. put very briefly, the um, when you're comparing yourself in an Equal Pay Act claim, uh, you can still use beyond the 1st of January uh, the single source test, which is that although the person you're comparing yourself with works elsewhere, um, so long as the um, your, your boss, your employer, is um, is providing terms and conditions to both you and your distant comparator, the so-called single source, that single source comparator can be relied on. And the other thing is that there's a slight tweak to the definition of disability arising from an EU case as well. And those have now been enshrined in in UK law. And as I said, the most interesting point about both of these is that UK judges were would have been given the freedom through the um, uh, retained EU law act to have departed from those judgments if they wish to. But what's happened is that the government has enshrined them in, in UK law, which is, I think, the, an interesting aspect of that. But those are the sole, the highly technical tweaks to the Equality Act, Very as good. far as I'm aware. Well, our, te our technocrat listeners will be pleased to have their, have their fix. I'm, I'm conscious we, we've covered quite a lot. and This was supposed to be a whistle stop, so I'm going to shift us along. Now, uh, can I with the risk of sounding glib, Rustam, can I summarise the working time regs record-keeping at its essence as we are not going to now have a requirement to record the working time of every worker, as was broadly speaking thought to be the, the case coming up. Uh, hopefully you've just about got that, and then we'll get on to what everybody's favourite subject of tupi. Yeah, no, really quickly, I mean, the, the cat was set amongst the pigeons because there was a suggestion that such records needed to be kept in respect of all employees to ensure that the uh, maximum number of working hours and the uh, uh, annual leave uh, were being taken. There was a, a Spanish case that got referred to the ECJ. Um, but what, as you say, what we have now is just a, a reconfirmation in the sense that the employer needs to take keep adequate records um, i mean i would though flag that the employer still needs to make sure they keep proper records in relation to young persons and those who work at night yeah and of course adequate records is a is a lovely expression for lawyers um yeah i mean the other bit just just quickly i know we do need to move on but particularly i would say in those areas where the national minimum wage might be at play it's still very much an issue um and the unhelpful thing is the definition of working time as i think we've talked about previously certainly covered in in previous sessions definition of working time in the context of working time regs and working time in the context of national minimum wage are unfortunately not the same no and then you get yeah. people night workers and rest periods and waiting periods and all of that complexity now, you're right because of course what we're saying is if you in order for you to know you're not subject to national minimum wage enforcement liabilities you would need 
that that necessitates the record keeping that necessitates you to use the right definitions of when someone's working or not <laughs> for the right landscape so um still not a completely well there's there's not been a nice neat clean up there then rustin is what you're saying it's still a lot of complexity in that system but right. um keep keeps keeps us keeps 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 you keeps you and me in a living adam yeah now chupi rustin have we the first thing i wanted to ask was um for our listeners have we still got gold-plated service provision changes so that uk position of whether or not there's a, a, a chupi transfer where there's a change of service provider is still um we have a higher likelihood of, of application under our gold-plated regulations or is there some change to remove that gold plating? Yeah, i mean two p and service provision change is um a highly emotional highly emotive uh no i mean i know there's an argument for saying that's gold-plated i would say that that was frankly largely putting into statutory regulations largely where the case law had got to and that it gave a degree relative degree of certainty to contractors uh, and clients. I mean, there's lots then to argue about whether that's really been achieved. But the short answer to your question is that 2P is largely untouched by these uh, regulations, save in relation to one area around collective consultation. And give, give us a oh, you've, you've teased us there, Rustin. Give us a give us the flavour of the collective consultation change then. Well, briefly, the point is, uh, the first point to make is that if the employer recognises a trade union, then it is obliged to consult with representatives of that trade union where measures are to be taken or are anticipated to be taken in the context of a 2 transfer. For those cases where the where the employer does not recognise a trade union, then the employer has the option as to whether to seek to recognise a trade union or at least to consult with trade union representatives for that purpose, or whether they seek to elect employee representatives. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, so for our listeners that, who maybe haven't had this and maybe come across it in future, previously employers would have occasionally looked at this point of do we want to choose to consult with our trade union with the trade union recognized reps or will we choose to hold an election and have our own group and that may depend on the nature of well, relation that that was the position a few years ago but then the regs as you know were changed so that the employer where it recognized trade union did not have that option and that position remains so if there is a recognized trade union you have to consult with the uh, representatives of that trade union if there isn't a recognized trade union then i think a lot of employers scratch their heads and say do we really need to have create uh, employee representatives for that purpose and what a lot of employers were doing in practice certainly in smaller scale transfers uh, where measures were to be taken or anticipated to be taken would be seeking to consult directly with all of those employees potentially affected and what the regulations do essentially is put on a statutory footing that practice in two cases either where the employer so this is this will be the transfer or employer has 50 or fewer employees in the business overall or where there are fewer than 10 employees and the terminology there is involved in the transfer, which is interesting because, of course, we normally talk about affected uh, employees who are not necessarily those that are going to lose their jobs, but whose perhaps uh, working conditions might in some way be impacted by, by the changes. But it's it's probably sensible. It, it got some stick from some of the trade unions because it's a move away from the notion of, uh, as it were, collective representation. Um 
in practical terms where there's just a handful of employees it, it, most employers would want to talk to individuals on a on that individual basis there's some devil in the detail there then because unless i'm mistaken the quite well established micro business exemption about whether you have to elect reps at all was about the business more generally having 10 or fewer staff yes so it's not yes. only a step away from that it's also involved in the transfer and yes that's a different terminology to what we okay yes so employer listeners beware you've got to look at the detail before you get too carried away with those changes um okay good so taking your temperature then generally and pulling together taking stock of the fact that we are now not going to have the removal of thousands of eu laws as of new year's eve going into first of january and we have some uh, amendments to the laws in these new regulations do each of you think this is a broadly good or a broadly bad bit of news for employers in england and wales start with you stephen i think the um tweaks to the legislation are by and large sensible it seems to me i don't i don't think there's anything here that you can um, really object to it it seems to me to be common sense stuff some of it would have been done outside the context of the eu for example the reaction to the harper decision i think is something which is a tidying up exercise um and i think that it's uh, i think that most most of it is sensible what it isn't is ambitious or radical um perhaps not surprisingly but uh but, but that's the position we were expecting a huge amount of change at the beginning of this year and that simply has not happened and the the government has not taken the opportunity to be to radically depart from eu uh, labor protection laws i think because they are largely popular in this country yes thank you stephen and rustin then last word on this good or bad thing overall for employers listening I think it's it, it's almost incidental or relatively inconsequential. But yeah, I'd agree with Stephen. Broadly good. Um, a lot of detail in the holiday pay stuff. I mean, it's, it's going to expand the working time regs quite substantially. The other thing I'd say, just looping back to something that Stephen said right at the start. Um, interestingly, what's happened now with these regulations is that we've enshrined in UK law or will be enshrining in UK law the approach to the calculation of holiday pay but strictly only for what we'll call the EU four-week holiday pay. So when you're working out the amount of holiday pay, you've got to include regular payments, uh, commission, uh, and other um, overtime uh, elements. But that's not automatically the same calculation, or it isn't the same calculation when you're talking about the other 1.6 weeks. So personally, I think that's an opportunity lost and missed and i think it's one thing having complexity it's another thing having complexity and then variability on the same topic which is holiday pay and i think if you said to the ordinary person or indeed the ordinary employer that actually by the way you know you've got two rates at which you can pay holiday pay or can be paid holiday pay most people would say what a nonsense that is thank you so summing it up we don't have a bonfire of eu laws uh, on new year's eve for for our, for our listeners to reflect on and worry about but equally by dint of then retaining a lot of eu laws we've retained some of those old familiar um not necessarily fondly familiar complexities around um 
Tupi and working time regulations and holiday pay calculations. So um, something of a mixed bag, I think we're picking up from this. But I hope that's been helpful to listeners um, as a quick uh, update and a quick view in on some of those changes coming in the new year. And we'll be back again for another session soon, I'm sure. Thank you both, Stephen and Rustin, for your time. And um, do uh, follow our podcast from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back again soon. Thanks.